the problem of the lack of access to capital is actually symptomatic of the complex. It is not the problem. It is the problem in the degree for individuals who are seeking capital, but it is not the systemic problem. The systemic problem is racism. The systemic problem is, in the way I think about things, is that there are three interlocking gears. One is uh, racial prejudice, or prejudice generally against the other, because uh, it, it, this may show itself as racism, and it may show itself as uh, uh, misogyny, it may show itself as homophobia, it may show itself as transphobia, but it is under the rubric of othering, of causing the other to be less than human and seeing that person as unworthy. That is inextricably linked to economic inequality, which itself is inextricably linked to power differentials. And one of the problems with any complex is that when you seek to change one component, I'm going to swap out this gear, you don't actually make the system work. You don't fix the system if you don't look at the entire systemic system. So to put another way, systemic problems require systemic solutions. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. So, you have helped build this company. You've done a great job, built an amazing organization, you've supported the team, and now you find yourself in this space of openness. So what would you like? I saw her cringe when I asked the question. She took a breath. She looked at me. She looked at the table. She said, I guess I would answer that with a question. What does the company need? And with that, I suddenly understood so much more of her stuckness. Here she was, this opportunity to really do whatever she wanted, and she didn't know what to do. She was looking around for what was needed of her. She was, like so many of the clients that I encounter, a hole filler, a fixer. And instead of looking for what she wanted, she was looking for what was needed. Since the beginning of Reboot, I have worn many hats. Been the podcast producer, been the guy responsible for building out our peer groups, our assessments, our engagement team, collaborated on many of our early marketing initiatives. I've even been the IT guy. All right, I still am the IT guy. And the truth is, I have been a hole filler myself. Wherever there was a need, wherever there was a spot that I saw that I could have helped with, I went for it. I was willing to do just about anything. And it felt good to be useful and helpful. It felt good to contribute. It felt good to know that I mattered. For a moment. Until I spotted the next hole that needed to be filled. Hole filling is a critical and necessary role that I've really seen in so many organizations that I work with. But for most hole fillers, it wasn't a role that they were asked to step into. It's actually one they had to assume a long time ago. And for me, I was young when I learned to spot the emotional holes my parents needed me to fill, the ways that I needed to care for them. And with that experience, I developed a keen sense of the needs of those around me. But I also had this feeling that developed that if I did not fill those holes, then I may not be safe. 
I may not belong. I may not be loved. It was an important lesson that saved me and served me. And it served me well in Reboot too. But what would happen if I just learned to sit in the anxiety of the unfilled holes instead of rushing to fill them? My client, she learned to do just that. And as she sat more and more with that anxiety, something powerful emerged. Her heart. She stopped seeing what others needed from her, stopped seeing what others demanded from her, and started to see what she stood for, what was most important to her, and what she wanted to bring forth in the world. Frankly, there is no stopping her now. Forrest Richter has his own experience as a fixer. As a Milwaukee-based entrepreneur with a passion for improving diversity and equity in the startup ecosystem, he comes to Jerry looking for help and insights on his mission to support underrepresented startup founders. In this discussion, they explore Forrest's own drive to fix, to spot and fill holes, and how the path to his greatest impact may not lie in fixing more problems more quickly, but actually starts with him slowing down. Enjoy. Twenty twenty, the year that has felt like a decade, is almost over. When it's all said and done, what will twenty twenty mean to you? For many that I speak with, and even myself, this year has really been one filled with challenges and unprecedented struggles, situations, and conversations. For some, it's been a catalyst for massive change—changes that they never would have dreamed they could have made. And for others. It's really been an opportunity to slow down, spend more time at home, spend more time doing things they love, and with those they love. And for many of us, it's also been an opportunity to really get more clear about what matters most. It really has been an incredible year, one that has changed the world as we know it, and has the potential to really change us as well if we give ourselves the space and time to reflect and learn from it. For the first time ever, we are happy to offer. Reboot Your Year, a virtual workshop dedicated to help you, in community with other rebooters, reflect and even celebrate 2020, crystallize the lessons that you may have learned over this last year, and really help you to move towards 2021 with purpose and intention. We cannot predict what 2021 will bring, but we can choose how we face it. We hope you'll join us on December 11th at 9 a.m. Mountain Time for Reboot Your Year. To learn more and to reserve your spot, go to rebootyouryear.com. Hey, Forrest, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here.、Oh. Well, why don't you take a minute and just introduce yourself and tell us who you are, and、uh, without an elevator pitch, tell us a little bit about the company. Sure.、Um, so I'm Forrest Richter, and I am the co-founder and CEO of Uncrowd.io. And、um, I built Uncrowd to connect underrepresented founders, women, people of color, LGBTQ plus founders、um, with investors.、Mm-hmm. And you know, I know that you came to us uh, uh, really through just sending a note saying, "Hey, I wish I could talk to Jerry about some things." Let's take us back to that. What would be helpful to talk through today? Yeah, the the thing that I think would be really helpful for me would be talking about imposter syndrome. I, I especially kind of in this interesting VC ecosystem that I know you have experience in, but also for me in the in the space that I play, I am a 
straight white male um, trying to support founders that I'm not the demographic of. And, and so I'm often trying to kind of represent and care for a community that I, I, I don't fit into. Mm-hmm. So um, just to reflect back, you sort of self-identify uh, the imposter syndrome, which is, which is good. And I'm imagining that it's exacerbated right now because of the work that you're trying to do. Right. So imposter syndrome oftentimes has a root to it. And then all of a sudden it shows up and it's got a particular voice. I cut you off. Is that right? No. Yeah, it, 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 it's right on. It's something that I've I, I've always been more of a generalist. So I've always sort of mm-hmm. carried that with me. Um, and I I. I've usually been good at a lot of things and not the subject matter expert on any specific thing. And so, um, especially early on in my career, I had a lot of ego tied up with that, that I felt like I had done a good job kind of shedding. But now that I've moved Mm -hmm. into this space um, and I'm talking to investors a lot of the time who frankly are better informed about what the investment process looks like than I am. Um, and then on the flip side, mm-hmm. I'm talking to founders and trying to support founders that are going through an experience that I can't represent. And I get questions a lot about why are you here and are you the right person to kind of lead this mission? All right, let's, let's dive in a little bit. What I'm really curious about is to hear what the voice, the imposter syndrome oftentimes has a voice. What is the voice saying to you? Um, the voice, I think it's a great question. And I kind of think of it in two different ways. And it's the same way I think about my business is I have kind of two audiences. I have an investor audience and I have a founder audience. And so that voice kind of changes depending who I'm talking to. But when I'm talking to investors, it's a lot about experience. It's a, you don't have the experience. You haven't been on the investor side. You don't know the challenges we go through. I don't know why you think you can help fix this space. That, that's a lot. It's a lot more self-doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the founder side, it's a lot more about, am I trying to help solve this issue, this kind of divide that exists between underrepresented founders and investors in a way that is supportive um and not kind of a a white savior um should it be should i be trying to elevate other voices should i be trying to uh put some i I don't necessarily know the solution um to it frankly but Mm -hmm. the the why for me has always just been because i can i'm somebody that is in a position that feels like there's a solution here but i'm not sure that's good enough sometimes So there's two there's two flavors to the voice. One flavor is um, you don't know what you're doing. Yes. You don't you don't have any expertise in this other area. And then the other voice is to really questioning your motivation. Why are you doing this? What is what is is this sort of a white savior kind of thing? And um, how can you do this? Um, uh, and 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 they and they they come in in a similar way, which is that they undermine your self confidence. Am I getting that right? Uh, absolutely. No. So before we sort of unpack the imposter syndrome, why don't you tell me a little bit of history? Why why are you doing this? 
Uh, yeah. So about five or six years ago, I left kind of a traditional corporate marketing and operations job and went and ran operations at a, a, my first startup that was uh, just past seed funding. I was one of the first adult hires, and I use that loosely because I was 28 years old, and this, but the second oldest employee in the company. And, um, and it was my first exposure to venture funding. I didn't know anything about venture capital before that. And the, the process that we went through was one that just felt inefficient to me, um, especially with an op, coming from an ops background. And, and so I kind of dove in to try to learn everything I could about the VC world. And that's when I discovered this giant kind of equity gap that exists where um, women, people of color, LGBTQ plus founders combined receive less than all vent- um, less than 10% of all venture funding. And to me, that immediately felt like a problem worth solving and also seemed like a problem that had um, economically was worth solving as well. It felt like a, a problem that could solve and pe- people could make money off of it as well. And so those two things combined to kind of take me down a road toward um, making an impact in the space. Um, super helpful. Tell me about um, seeing things that are inefficient and wanting to um, make them more efficient. Tell me about that part of your personality. Yeah. Well, I'd also love to get your thoughts on it, but I, I'm always somebody who kind of how to do things more efficient has been kind of just a natural uh, a natural uh, opportunity for me. Something I've succeeded at where I can see kind of hiccups and see roadblocks and try to navigate around them. And specifically in venture funding, um, what I was seeing was just uh, an economy of warm introductions. Who do you know that can introduce you to somebody else? And who do you know that can introduce you here? And that just sort of felt misaligned for me in terms of how what would be kind of the optimal version. And that was that was kind of the the beginning there. Okay, so I get that you see the venture process as inefficient. And as somebody who spent a long time in that process, I can attest to the inefficiencies of that and the high degree of dependency on the warm introduction, as you put it. Who do you know? And and those kinds of connections. And that, by the way, is true not merely um, when underrepresented entrepreneurs and founders are seeking funding. It is just a truism in the business uh, as a whole. It can get exacerbated when we're, when um, folks are coming from demographic groups where there aren't those kinds of network connections. In my early days in the business, we used to refer to the old boys network. Um, and there is still a phenomena of that. Many times that uh, those relationships can start even in business school. And so if you think about it, there's privilege built into the system in addition to the inefficiencies. And those sort of play off of each other and maintain systems of inequality. So I want to acknowledge that. Absolutely. But... You know, this is the Reboot podcast, so we're not just going to stay at the cognitive level and sort of fix problems. So what I'm hearing is two other aspects of forest character structure, one which you've named, which is uh, as imposter syndrome. And at some point in in our conversation, you talked about the fact that you um, 
don't really, you don't see yourself as having a domain expertise in any one area. You called yourself a generalist and you linked the generalist with imposter syndrome. I'm a generalist, meaning I can touch upon a lot of different things. So therefore I'm an imposter, which is an interesting linking. We'll circle back to that in a moment. Sure. But here's another aspect of your character structure, which I'm seeing, which is you're a fixer too, aren't you? Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I, I haven't put a name to that before, but I, I do like to make things work. <laughs> right. So I'm going to take you out of the realm of work and into the realm of relationships. And um, uh, have you ever dated someone who said, just listen to me, stop fixing? Um, yes, very, very, very close to home. I think my <laughs> wife has said that to me many times. Okay. Okay. So let's, let's roll back and, um, I'm sure you're just making the household more efficient when you're making suggestions. <laughs> you're laughing. Sure. I am <laughs> right. laughing because I, I, that, that feels spot on. Right. Right. What's your wife's first name? Uh, Aaron. Aaron, hi. I want you to know that I hear you and I imagine what your experience with uh, Forrest is like. So <laughs> hopefully we're making her laugh. Okay. So, so the characterological trait of self-identifying as a generalist, and that's an imposter, coupled with a fixer, actually predate anything having to do with work or anything having to do with adulthood. Does that make sense? Or resonate with it you. does make sense yeah, it, 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 yeah I, I i've never explored that i have never but i what i have every reason to believe you based on what you've said right so um i'm going to activate your efficiency brain your part which tends to look at processes and root systems and say okay what's going on here and we're going to take you all the way back to the subroutines as i call them in my book that really define both points of view. One point of view is you're not a specialist, so therefore you're an imposter. And the other point of view is your job is actually to fix things and make them better. Right. Yep. Both of those align. Right. So how does it make you feel when you fix things? Um, honestly, like probably not as good. It feels normal. Like that feels like baseline baseline is fixed. So there's no, I don't necessarily get a ton of like satisfaction out of it. I go like, great, that thing's fixed. Let's move on to the next thing that needs to get fixed. So it's, so the dopamine hit is brief and bursty You're done problem solved next. Right. Exactly. And so, uh, it must be an interesting challenge to how does it feel when the fact that you've just solved the problem and you still see more problems? Um, it feels normal. I, I, I guess that's just kind of the my my worldview. Uh, it, it's how I feel all the time. I think it's why I'm I really like working with early stage companies is because there's always problems and I and there's always new things to do and new things to to tackle. And so it's pretty easy for me to just kind of transition from we did that thing. What's the next thing we're going to do? Right. So notice uh, that uh, that what you're calling normal is a kind of baseline. This is who I am. This is how I identify. This is the thing that makes me feel 
like I'm productive in the world, that, I, that I'm contributing to the world, right? And that has been a really glorious way for you to navigate the world. Yes. Right? What might the relationship between that and being a generalist be? And, and it's a quasi-leading question. I sort of have a suspicion, but not 100%. God. Um, well, I guess for me, I think it's that I have a diverse set of interests, but it's possible that that is a, not the, that's the antecedent now that I'm kind of talking to you. So maybe mm-hmm. because I'm looking to fix things, I just kind of go to whatever's broken and then end up fixing that thing and then move to the next thing that's broken and fix it, which I, I certainly open up to the possibility that that's the case. Yeah. And as you were saying that you were smiling and there was a kind of uh, that that little smile of, of recognition of like moving through life, seeing problems that need to be fixed. Yeah, that's that's not something I have ever self-identified before, but like even like quickly just scanning back, I'm like, yeah, that sounds sounds pretty spot on. Right. And so one of the challenges of that as a strategy, and that's all this is, is this is a strategy for navigating life. One of the challenges for navigating for for that as a strategy is that it doesn't allow your sense of self and your sense of psyche to just sort of land and say, I actually am okay, even if I don't fix things. You're smiling, you're, you're nodding, you're thinking. I'm more. processing. Yeah, I know yeah. that. Sorry, that's not good for an audio medium. No, that, that's um, fine. I, <laughs> that's fine. No, 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 no. Um, I, yeah, I think, I, I do think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying there. And, and I'm quickly kind of just cycling back through a lot of just how I live my, my day-to-day life of just kind of bouncing to the next thing without necessarily settling and exhaling. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you just referenced the exhale because before we officially started recording, you suggested that you exhale. And so I actually had us both take a deep breath. Yeah, that was. And and in that moment, I did recognize that I needed that. Like I would like when you kind of went through, you know, hey, this is how this works. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, this is great. Like I could I could use I could use an hour of conversation where I don't have to now using some new wording behind it, be fixing something. Or someone. Or someone. Right, right. So I want to bring your attention to the fact that there's actually a tight correlation in the, the, in, in the, in the states, the states of mind that you've begun identifying as disparate. They're actually a system and they work together, which is I move from thing to thing, fixing people and processes. That is my norm. And it reinforces the fact that I am, quote, a generalist. So I move. My, uh, my partner, um, my colleague, likes to define himself as a snail darter. He moves in and he moves out. He fixes things and he moves in and he moves out. He moves in and he moves out. Right? And the challenge um, is that it can exacerbate the sense of there is no center, there is no ground. Now, for holding that point of view, and we all have a tendency of that imposter syndrome, I'm going to speak about that now, we all have that tendency, that set of voices 
Many of us do. Some narcissists, especially those in power, um, don't. We all have these sort of governors on our ego that, that are designed to keep us from being, feeling shame and feeling humiliation for being found out as the incompetent that we suspect we are. Right? Sure. And so that shows up in that voice. And what I often advise people is to actually see that voice for what it's really intending to do, which is to actually keep you safe from shame. But in this case, in addition to that phenomena that's going on, part of what's going on is because you don't have a sense of groundedness in your own self, that voice is louder. Now, let me, let me ask a, a separate question. So you're a generalist. Um, and, uh, we've got this, this fixer thing going on. Um, how, how did you do in school? Um, good. I, I, well, I would say until probably all through high school, like grade school through high school, I didn't find school particularly challenging. Um, and then I got destroyed my freshman year of college because I didn't know actually how to be a good student. Um, Mm -hmm. and then so dug myself a nice big GPA hole that I was able to dig out of. And I would say by the end of college, maybe my junior year, I finally learned how to study. And, and then I had A's through junior and senior year of college. All right. So so notice that you, you had the reckoning that a lot of high achievers fear, which is we're, we're, we're going along and we're doing well enough in school that we never have to develop the resilience that comes from actually being tested and really growing and, 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 and learning how to learn. And then you had the reckoning in freshman year where it was like, yes. holy shit, this coasting thing that I've been doing, it got me A's, but it actually doesn't serve me anymore. Cause now I'm in an environment where I'm actually really being tested. What, what college did you go to? Uh, University of Minnesota. Okay, so it was a good school that actually took you to a higher level of learning. Am I seeing that right? Yes. Right. And so throughout uh, middle school and high school, that imposter voice was sitting there going, Forrest, you're not really studying. Forrest, you're actually just coasting. Forrest, you're answering questions about the novel in English class that you actually did not read. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> right. Spot on. <laughs> right. And Spot so on. all that's going on, all that's going, going forward. All right. So this is the complex. So the whole syndrome is designed to keep you from re-experiencing that reckoning. Holy shit. I don't know what's... They've discovered that I don't know what I'm doing. Does this make any sense? It, I mean, it makes perfect sense because I, I really did get kicked in the teeth that first semester of freshman year for like I had never had I, I never had C's, let alone reckoning with an F, which right. is what happened. Right, right, right. OK, so let's just take a deep breath because now we're in the shame zone. And let's just acknowledge it. So breathe with me. OK. <sighs> And I'm going to say something that, that some mentors may have said to you in the past, that F may have been the best thing you ever got. Because it caused you to sort of re-examine the way you experience things. 
Definitely. And so when we're in a fix-it mode, one of the things to hold on to is that we're very often trying to fix our own feelings by showing that we can add value in some way, that we can be productive, or in the parlance of my book, that we're worthy of love, we're worthy of safety, we're worthy of belonging. Because I may not know everything, I may not be an expert, but at least I can fix things. That is spot on. Like, that is... I, I, I like, I, I didn't want to, like, I don't want to just be, you know, a guest who comes on and says yes to everything. I was not expecting kind of you to hit the nail on the head with something I hadn't figured out before <laughs> on such like a simple way that it, I'm, I'm kind of blown away, honestly. All right. So we just take a, take a breath and understand that the reason I'm able to zero in and see things like this is not because I'm special or magical. I am. But that's a different issue. <laughs> it's just because it's very, very common. And the truth is, I have very, very similar aspects of my personality. Very, very similar aspects of my personality. So we just recognize that this is sort of the way complex systems work. And one of the problems that I often see is that when we look at systemic problems, complexes that have multiple pieces to them, when we look at them and we only want to say, well, I want to fix this piece right here without an understanding of the complexity, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm going to change one part of a car engine without really addressing or, or dealing with the others. And then we don't understand why it doesn't work. Okay. That makes sense. Right. So the reason we took this sort of detour into your past was to sort of circle back into where you are right now and what you're trying to do right now, which is take the complex of superpowers that you have, your ability to see a problem, your ability to analyze and propose solutions to those problems, marry to your values, right? So I want to talk a little bit about values right now. Sure. You're a white cisgendered male. Why do you care about underrepresented people? That, by the um, way, is not an open, honest question. It's a leading question. <laughs> yeah, that, no. I mean, the answer is I because I the short. I mean, the short answer is because I can and I should. I I, I believe it in my heart, but I also am in a position where I feel like I can make a difference. Like I am in a position where I feel like I can make an impact, and and I've been. I understand fundraising. And I feel like I can help people navigate that because it is a complex process. Why is it so important? Um, it's important because we need more equity, um, not in the financial sense, in the, the social sense. We need, we need more diversity in our startup ecosystem. We need more we need to create more generational wealth for communities that haven't had it in the past. And, and this is a space where that could happen. Mm. So, you know, I'll cut to the chase and say, I agree with you. Um, as another white cisgendered male of power and privilege, 
I think it is my moral and ethical responsibility to do what I can to see the world that I believe needs to exist. And one of the things that I think is incredibly important for folks who are in meat bags like mine is to understand the ways I have benefited without any effort on my part in an unconscious way and live a life of safety and privilege simply because of the racial constructs of this society. Concomitant with that responsibility is an equally important responsibility, which is to recognize that the underlying ego structures of my childhood, the survival strategies I developed to grow into the adult that I am, throw off issues that sometimes benefit those around me and sometimes hurt those around me. And so I have an equally important responsibility to look at the structures of my life, to understand the ways in which I hurt people. Okay. So you want to solve the problem of access to capital by underrepresented entrepreneurs. Is that correct? Exactly. What if I told you that the problem of access to capital is actually one part of a system, a complex? I I would completely agree. I'd be curious where where what 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 you would say to that because I, I can tell you openly, like especially since I've been on quarantine, as we all sort of have, mm-hmm. um, and I've seen systemic inequity um, at a national, at least at a national level, but certainly there's been examples of at a global level since we've been here, I've wondered about, and I really am genuinely curious to get your thoughts about specifically whether venture capital is savable, like whether the the system that exists is fixable or whether we need to be exploring just other funding models, other, other funding opportunities. Like is, is this even a worthy endeavor has been a question I have asked myself. So, um, So, so think back to what we just did in unpacking both the relationship between fixing and the imposter syndrome that you, that exists. And we look at both of those together and we saw that they're in fact a complex with, think of them as gears that mesh to create this, the machine. The problem of the lack of access to capital is actually symptomatic of the complex. It is not the problem. It is the problem in the degree for individuals who are seeking capital, but it is not the systemic problem. The systemic problem is racism. The systemic problem is, the way I think about things, is that there are three interlocking gears. One is uh, racial prejudice or prejudice generally against the other because uh, this may show itself as racism and it may show itself as uh, uh, misogyny 
it may show itself as homophobia, it may show itself as transphobia, but it is under the rubric of othering, of causing the other to be less than human and seeing that person as unworthy. That is inextricably linked to economic inequality, which itself is inextricably linked to power differentials. And one of the problems with any complex is that when you seek to change one component, I'm going to swap out this gear, you don't actually make the system work. You don't fix the system if you don't look at the entire systemic system. So to put another way, systemic problems require systemic solutions. Completely agree with you. So I'm going to challenge you on your intellectualized question, which is, is venture capital savable? Venture capital is a gear in a very complex system. And the complex system is capitalism. Right? Um, and so the question really is, is how do we approach the entirety in order to make a difference in particular areas, right? You want to, you, ironically, as someone who identifies as a generalist, you're focused on a very specialized problem area, access to capital. That's great. So you want to sort of look at the entire system here and approach it with the awareness that if you step into this process of I'm going to fix it, you are living into a white savior model. You are. If you approach the system, the systemic problem, uh, trying to fix venture capital and without an overarching awareness that um, the profit motive is suspect, then the progress that you make is going to be marginal and small in effect and, and likely not be sustainable, right? And so you have to actually look at the entire breadth of the problem, just the way we looked at the entire breadth of the problem of the imposter syndrome as, wait a minute, this is actually, there's some positive aspects of this. There's some negative aspects. It's actually linked to the feelings I have about myself. It's about linked to the fact that it, right? So we see it systemically. Does this make sense? Perfect. Perfect sense. Okay. So a lot of times when we bring our attention to the larger systemic problem, we can be overwhelmed. And we sort of shrug ourselves and say, well, fuck that. How the fuck do I fix capitalism? It does. It does. It feels, it that feels way. so big. It feels so big. It feels so big. I know that. I know that. There are two responses I have to the, it feels so big. And I want to bring your attention to the tenderness that just came into you as you spoke about that. Tell me about feeling it's so big. Um, I just think what you're talking about, and I completely agree, like fundamentally racism is at the core here or whatever ism you want to insert. But, mm -hmm. um, and and that certainly isn't black and white. Like it's it's a 
it's systemic. It is something that shapes way shapes everything we do in a way that we don't necessarily even understand. And and mm-hmm. certainly from my perspective, something that I haven't always been conscious of. And, and so trying to tackle a problem like that feels like something it, it feels insurmountable in in the way that like when I look at kind of what I feel like I can, where I can make an impact, that's where I feel like um, funding is a place I can actually make a, make a difference. And that's, I guess, why I lean into that. Yeah. So, so I want you to stay in that place right now, just for a few minutes. I, I, I promise you I'll release you from that place. But I want okay. you to stay in the place of it feeling completely insurmountable and overwhelming. And there's a tenderness that's in your in your face right now. And I'm going to project into it. I could be wrong, which is, Jerry, I want so desperately to make a difference in the world. And when you make me see the enormity of the problem, I feel like I can't make a difference in the world. Am I na- naming something? Exactly. Yeah. So just stay right there. One of the ways that we as humans are socialized is we run away from that spot. And there's tears and there's sadness and there's a sense of the enormity of the problem. I'm going to make it even bigger. The root of climate change problems is racism. The root of racism is climate denial is our disassociation from the earth. Income inequality is racism made large, writ large. It is all interconnected. And we have to see that fully. And we are socialized to not see it because when we see it, our hearts break just the way your heart is breaking right now. Yeah. Because I don't know what the fuck to do. And if we go back to the early, early programming, the only way I can feel love, safety, and belonging is if I can do something. So let's just take a deep breath on that. Three things I would say in response to this. The first is to quote James Baldwin, who said, not everything that is faced can be transformed, but nothing can be transformed until it is faced. And the tears, the heartbreak that you're feeling right now stem from the fact that You didn't count on this. You didn't plan on this. But your friend Jerry just made you look at something much larger. That was really hard. Yeah. And part of the problem I see in our society is we have trained ourselves to look away. To to not look at the fact, for example, that as a society, we don't like poor people. Because they remind us that... There but for the grace of God go I. Which, by the way, is the opposite 
mindset of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Sure. We don't like looking at people who are differently abled. We don't like experiencing otherness. It challenges us. But nothing can be transformed unless we're willing to look at it and to face it within ourselves and within the larger world. The second thing I would say is, so, so, okay, Jerry, you've got me facing at this. What the fuck do I do? I go back to something that I learned in college. One of my uh, professors was an activist named John Gerasi. He was a professor, a tenured professor at uh, Queens College. And uh, Tito used to say to us, a very, very popular phrase for community organizers at the time, which was think global and act local. Think global and act local. And what that means is your work to do is the work that your mind has taken you to, is to stand shoulder to shoulder with underrepresented entrepreneurs to lean into the problem of the access to capital. Your karma, your mindset has brought you to that, that facet of the systemic problem. Good. I'm proud of you for doing that. That's good work. Thank you. The act local, the piece that may be missing here, maybe is the involvement of the people that you seek to help. Think for a moment back to Erin, your wife, when you want to fix her problem. What is it that she really wants? She wants to talk. She wants me to listen. That, that's a better way to say it. That's yes. what she wants. She needs to be heard. Yeah. Right? Our impulse is to come in and with a solu suggested solution. Your impulse, Jerry, here's a question you asked me. What would you tell a woman of color trying to fundraise for her startup? The problem I have with your question is the word tell. If you had asked me, Jerry, how do I listen better? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> okay. The, the, I don't have the answer. That woman of color you seek to help has the answer. What she needs, I suspect, is someone to stand shoulder to shoulder and say, this is a fucking fucked up world. And I see it in its entire complexity. And I can't even begin to stand in your shoes, but I'll stand with you and I will listen. And when I watch white people do that fucking thing that white people do, I will call it out and I will stand up to it and I'll place myself as a body to protect if that's what it calls for. The last piece of, 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 
I even hesitate to call it advice. The last piece of comfort that I myself take comes from my teacher, Parker Palmer. Parker is 81. He's been an activist longer than I've been alive. He is one of the wisest people I know. He is reared in the Quaker tradition, um, who, by the way, um, elevates silence so that they can elevate listening, both to their hearts and to the hearts of others. And Parker has a construct that I find incredibly helpful. And the construct is what he refers to as the tragic gap. And the gap is between the world that we would like to see and the world as it is. And what he says is that we are called to stand in between those two worlds. The world as it is, is fucked. You know, one of, uh, one of my uh, uh, podcast guests last week in a conversation referred to the conversations around race right now as the reckoning. One of the things that's happening as a consequence of this reckoning is that it is, uh, for many of us, no longer, we're no longer able to look away. Thank goodness. And the world that we'd like to be, a world of harmony, a world where, where every entrepreneur's uh, access to capital uh, stems from the quality of their ideas, not whether or not they are connected to somebody through some business school relationship or their community, or they have been reared where, where uh, people of privilege just simply automatically help each other. Because this is what we do. Yeah. This is what we do. And our job is to stand right in the middle because the world that we'd like to be probably will never be. And we have to take in that heartbreaking reality. The world that we'd like to be probably will never be. Certainly not in my lifetime and I'm 57 and probably not in your lifetime and you're in your 30s. But we cannot give up on that world. We cannot give over to the world just as it is, because otherwise we give over to what he refers to as corrosive cynicism. So we have to stand in this place between what he refers to as irrelevant idealism and corrosive cynicism. Recognizing that those two worlds exist, we roll up our sleeves and we get to work. We do our local work. We help where we can every single day, every single interaction. Now, I don't know if uncrowd.io is the solution to this problem. I know that my friend Bryce Roberts at Indy.vc is trying to create a solution as well. I know that part of the solution is not just underrepresented entrepreneurs getting more access to capital, but underrepresented people showing up more in positions of power and equity and economic equality to start to change the dynamic. I know that that Absolutely. is true, right? But the, the fact that there is a complex system means that every single day we pick up our tools and we go to work. 
You have work to do. I have work to do every single day. And for the rest of my life, I will dedicate myself to my part of the problem or my part of the solution, which is listening, making observations, feeling my way to see more clearly when necessary, and using whatever platform I have to advance and amplify voices that might otherwise not be heard. Because it is hubris for me to think that I have the answer to the question. But it is not hubris for me to think that I have a broken, open heart so that I can actually listen to people. You take the pain of what you're feeling right now and you go forth and you listen. And you stand shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're spot on. How are you feeling? Um, motivated. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I, I know that sometimes you make your guests cry or your, I shouldn't say you make your guests cry when they're talking to you. I invite them to cry. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought it would be me. I never expected that to happen. Um, but I, I have a new, a new North star, uh, a new way to look at this and a new way to kind of guide things forward that I didn't have an hour ago. Well, uh, uh, if I, if I can be so bold as to name that North star, it's right there in your chest. Yeah. One of the consequences of the imposter syndrome fix it three-legged stool. The third leg is an over-reliance on your brain, your prefrontal cortex to intellectually figure things out. By you feeling the enormity of the thing that you're trying to do, you opened up access to the most powerful source of energy the world needs right now. Your broken heart and love. Do this out of love and you'll be okay. Yeah, I, I'm in a, I have a lot to think about on this, but I, I will tell you, I feel a sense of confidence mm. in the mission and in the project that I didn't have before. Mm. And that's the best possible answer to the voice in your head that tells you you're an imposter. Yeah, it is. I'm going to do this anyway, and it's okay if I stumble and miss because now what you're connected to is what in Buddhism we'd say is right intention. That's what those tears are, right intention. We hold that place. This is bodhicitta, open heart. This is the soul of the bodhisattva, the one who, who, who in Buddhism we say forestalls enlightenment until all beings are free from suffering. That's the true wish. And those, beautiful. those tears tell me you have the heart of a lion. You go, you go fight the good fight. Thank you. I will. All right. Thank you for coming on the show. It was an honor to be with you right now.
If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash signup so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of insight. What does it mean to build organizations of belonging? How can you build an organization safe enough for the whole human to show up at work? In Reboot's newest email course, we discover the hidden power and privilege that can pervade an organization and consider what is needed beyond the HR trends and into matters of the heart to create and sustain real places of belonging for all employees. Compiled and created by the Reboot team of coaches and facilitators, this course is a conversation around the question, how can you contribute to creating an inclusive culture of belonging? The course will unfold via a series of six emails full of content, one email per day over six days. And we hope by the end of the course, you have a sense on how you can relate to belonging to yourself, how you create belonging in your communities, work, home, and life. To learn more and to sign up for free, head to reboot.io inclusivity.